This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Nietzsche Podcast. And I want to wish everyone a happy autumn. We just passed the autumnal equinox around September 23rd, I believe. And uh, even though that was a couple weeks ago here in Texas, it still does not feel like the fall uh, weather has really blown in. We've gotten a couple cool fronts. It's cooler today and yesterday than it has been. We're finally out of like the 90 degree range every day. But uh, October's in Texas can be a bit weird. We can sometimes have spikes in heat and um, very late hot temperatures. And then all of a sudden it gets really cold around November. And I'm very much looking forward to that. But we're kind of, you know, beginning to get some of those those uh, fall uh, vibes at the moment. The leaves are falling off the trees. And I am one of those autumn people, by the way. Some of you may know. I It's my uh, season. It's the one that I gravitate towards. And I think it has a lot to do with living in Texas and just how long the summer is. It takes up about half the year. And then we kind of get fall, winter, and spring crammed into the period of like the other half of the year. Um, and so fall or autumn is the first shift in the weather, the first big change after this long feeling of stagnation and just sweltering heat. It really starts to get to you around late September. That finally begins to break, at least ever so slightly. And that it's it's always been magical for me. Winter time was always the more tolerable part of year so it's the beginning of my favorite part of year and then summer is just like a long nightmare (laughs) in these parts but um so i wanted to read this quote uh, at the beginning this is ray bradbury and it's it's from his uh this collection he published of stories called the autumn people and they're actually just sort of horror stories i think they're actually adapted from old comic books and uh But anyway, this is from Bradbury's introduction, quote, For these beings, fall is ever the normal season, the only weather, there be no choice beyond. Where do they come from? The dust. Where do they go? The grave. Does blood stir their veins? No, the night wind. What ticks in their head? The worm. What speaks from their mouth? The toad. What sees from their eye? The snake. What hears with their ear, the abyss between the stars. They sift the human storm for souls, eat flesh of reason, fill tombs with sinners. They frenzy forth. Such are the autumn people. End quote. Uh, And I know that doesn't explain anything about what it means to be an autumn person, as I just put it. Um, Other than, you know, it's basically just a prose poem here. Uh, But there is something that I identify with in it, even though it's, it's got a little bit of those, uh, there's something of a creepy vibe to it, but that's part of autumn as well, right? Is the, um, well, it, you know, in pagan, uh, holidays, they called it Samhain. Uh, but it's, you know, the autumnal equinox is always a time where you're shifting towards the period of decline where the sun is declining in the sky. And, the heat and light and warmth is sort of declining. And in ancient times, you know, agriculture became uh, impossible. You had to just sort of live off of what you had saved up 
Um, you know, it's harvest time, right? This is where um, everything that you've sown is now reaped and the fruit and the leaves fall off the trees. And it's the entering into a period of death so that then, you know, there can be this rejuvenation later in spring. This is part of this, the cycle of the seasons is like one of the great mysteries that captivated the pagan mind. And so a commonly associated idea with the coming of fall or autumn is, uh, and by the way, I've heard in American English, you're supposed to say fall. Um, and it's British English where they say autumn. I mean, Ray Bradbury, let me look it up. Actually, I should know this, but I'm pretty sure Ray Bradbury's American. Yeah. He's an American author and screenwriter. I just looked that up on Wikipedia. So, and he, you know, he calls his short story collection, the, the autumn people. So clearly at least it didn't used to be exclusively a British term. And I often have thought that you could just use them interchangeably, but I've, I've heard some people suggest that it's like, oh, that's the British way to say autumn or to say fall <laughs> rather, which is, you know, it, it, it's funny because, you know, you have autumn from the Latin autumnus, which I think comes from like then into English from the old French versus in America where we're like, well, the leaves are falling down from the trees. So we'll just call it fall. <laughs> just, you know, very unsophisticated and seems to, um, I guess, play into stereotypes about the difference between Americans and Brits. And so I think we should all defy the stereotype and, and dare to use fall and autumn interchangeably. But anyway, the a thing that, or this idea that's associated with the coming of fall is um, this time when the veil between worlds is weakened and spirits or maybe the uh, ghosts of the deceased might be able to uh, more powerfully interact with our world. Um, at least that's sort of one of the ideas about Samhain. And just like with the Day of the Dead in Mexico, where one's ancestors or the ghosts of your ancestors are fed with offerings... Uh, sometimes literally at their, you know, at their grave, at their at the graveyard or at a shrine or so on and so forth. And, you know, the ghost is said to be able to sort of eat and drink um, on that day and come and dine with you. Um, in Samhain, uh, in that Celtic or pagan holiday, they would also uh, appease the spirits with uh, libations and, you know, burnt offerings and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, and similarly, the souls of one's uh, ancestors are said to visit the homes uh, during this time. And so it's not just a coincidence that we have, you know, the spooky holiday of Halloween uh, comes right after the autumnal equinox, that this is a time of transition and it's there's a liminal nature to this holiday. And there's, strangely enough, this idea in both the Western world in Europe, and I guess you could say the far Western world beyond the Atlantic, that even though they came up in isolation with one another, but among the Native Americans in Mexico, of sort of a similar idea of this like weakening between the barriers between the spirit world and the material world, and spirits being able to come in and interact, and of course your dead kinsmen or your dead relatives being able to come in and interact. And it has an important, I think, social aspect of sort of binding the continuity of the family together and giving the individuals within the family the comfort that, 
even after they die, they will sort of have a place. They can come back home and dine and be shown hospitality by their family, their descendants, and by you carrying on and in this tradition, you're sort of ensuring it for yourself in the future, which this idea goes all the way back to, as you might remember, the ancient Greeks and Romans, um, and uh, even also the ancient Chinese. Um, very, very common uh, ancient belief. And the festival of Samhain had this other element where people would go to door, door to door uh, in disguises or costumes and would go and recite uh, verses, poetry in exchange for food or treats, you might say. And so, you know, all of these uh, seemingly, you know, just like fun little rituals that we do every year actually do have a, a meaning and an ancestry to them. And so that is all a roundabout way of saying that as uh, being an autumn person, right, you do uh, sort of have a tend to have I, I, the people I know who are autumn people. I mean, this just in the most literal sense that that's their time of year. That's when they feel most at home. That's when they shine, right? That's when they're just waking up every day saying, ah, another perfect day, right? Um, the kind of people who like it when it's overcast and the leaves are falling off the trees and it's, you know, raining every week and the a, a chill wind is blowing, right? So everyone I know who is like that, uh, who where autumn is their normal time of year, uh, we all have that fascination with horror and literature or existential horror or pessimistic philosophy, uh, you know, gee, have you heard of any philosophers like that? And this usually includes a fascination with the occult or with esoteric, uh, you know, religious teachings or, you know, these old mythologies and beliefs. And uh, just to tease some of the things that are coming up in the podcast in the immediate future, uh, I am planning on having some conversations on some of these topics with some of the familiar uh, guests that have been on, on the podcast before. Um, and I should ask them if they're autumn people, actually, whether they consider themselves autumn people. And of course, you know, we are planning a uh, another Halloween episode of the podcast. I don't know how popular of a uh, type of episode that is, but of course, it's my podcast, so I'm going to continue to do them. So those are a couple updates of what you can expect in the immediate future of the podcast. I know I've been teasing everybody with season four for the longest time, and we're finally at the end of the Beyond Good and Evil readings. But uh, as I also mentioned, I wanted to take uh, some, at least a short amount of time off. And so this is the only episode for this week, and then next week there's not going to be an episode. We will have a, a break there, and then we will get into season four on the following week. And hopefully the untimely reflections content that I'm working on will be able to come out. Um, we'll be able to do some uh, some weeks where we have an, a normal episode release and then a conversation release on Friday. I'm always really happy when I get into that rhythm for a couple weeks. Um, and usually we have a big burst of sort of a lot of that, uh, a lot of releases at the beginning of the season. So um, that's your update on the immediate future of where the podcast is heading. Um, expect a short break. Um, I'm going to a wedding next week in Colorado, so I'm going to be flying there, and then I'm going to be spending a week, roughly, 
basically staying in a cabin up in the Rockies, and then we'll drive into town for the wedding. And so hopefully I'll get some work done while we're there, but mostly I'm going to be trying to spend time out in nature and uh, spend time not thinking about philosophy. I mean, that's probably not true. I'll probably end up reading um, some philosophy books or books that will end up be being covered on the show. So because that basically, you know, everything I read at this point in my life is something that I'm going to talk about on the show. I don't really have time to do reading outside of that because the reading for the Nietzsche podcast is so demanding. So um, I'm sure I'll bring a book and it will be in some way, uh, me reading it will be used for the podcast. I'm sure of that. But uh, I still intend on spending most of my time hiking and probably improving my chess game, which isn't my current obsession. And I was kind of thinking about it, you know, given that I started this in like February, I'm doing pretty well, I think. Um, My goal is to get to like a thousand ELO rating by the end of the year. So if I can be a thousand rated for playing chess for under a year, I'll be really proud of myself. Uh, As for what this episode is in general, um, I guess this episode is just to update all of you on my life, where I've been and where I'm heading, and the same with the podcast. We had, I think, a really fun, at least for me, and a lot of you seem to enjoy it, uh, therefore very successful walkthrough analysis of Beyond Good and Evil. I think I now see how long, I I didn't really know how long it was going to take, but this gives me a good idea that, um, you know, because Birth of Tragedy was a shorter book, much shorter, and it helps me understand with this length of a Nietzsche book how long it's going to take and uh, why I'll probably never do what I just did with Beyond Good and Evil for Thus Spoke Zarathustra um, and watch, you know, I'll probably end up doing that in like three or four years when <laughs> I have no choice and there's nothing else to do. But because that that's going to take a, a monumentally long time in order to accomplish something like that, you kind of have to do it book by book, maybe, which could be possible. But um, so it gave me a concept of, you know, this is a multi-month task to uh, go through the entire content of one of Nietzsche's books, more or less. I mean, we, we skipped over a few sections, but oftentimes the sections that we skipped over, the only reason why I was able to skip them over is because there's already another episode covering them in more detail, which means that the full length of the Beyond Good and Evil walkthrough analysis, um, I haven't really made a list of what all the episodes are that I reference in the course of reading through uh, Beyond Good and Evil, uh, previous episodes of the podcast, but just off the top of my head, like the episode on the master and slave morality, uh, the episode, the wisdom of the body, the episode on the genius of the heart. And I know there are more than that, but you know, the genius of the heart aphorism, for example, uh, it needs that whole episode, right? So that's almost like an addendum, at the very least, to listening to the entire Beyond Good and Evil walkthrough analysis is the, uh, if you hadn't heard the genius of the heart, it should be listened to at the end. That would actually be like the perfect time to listen to that episode, um, or the perfect order to listen to those in. And so the true length of this walkthrough analysis of Beyond Good and Evil is actually probably a little bit more than even just those 15 episodes. Because assuming I were to just start from scratch and do that with a book that I hadn't really covered sufficiently in any other place, probably take a little longer because 
you'd have to go into each of those and in, in, in their depth. So uh, it gave me a concept for how long it really takes to do that and made me kind of think that these kinds of walkthrough analysis projects might be, uh, I might want to pick something a little shorter next time, or maybe it's something that I'll save for later in the podcast's lifespan, if that makes any sense. That like I can get to a lot of the other books and do this kind of uh, completionist analysis of the text and exegesis of it uh, for probably most of Nietzsche's books, but I don't know if I need to be in a in a hurry because I think it's a lot better to correlate the ideas of different books within the sort of lecture format that I have and talk about a given idea or concept or a through line through Nietzsche's philosophy has always been more interesting to me. But this has been a relatively successful experiment. It seems like a lot of you uh, enjoyed it. Uh, I haven't done untimely reflections in a while of those conversational episodes, but it's kind of because during the interseason, I really didn't want to be hustling out there trying to chase down guests to record uh, for the podcast because uh, I was focusing on my bands in large part. And the thing about analyzing Beyond Good and Evil is that I've read the book so many times that it, it was easier to approach that because I already had so many preformed thoughts on it. And uh, reading it again, I mean, even on this new read-through, there were things that I kind of put together that I hadn't on previous readings. There's always something new when you read Nietzsche, um, or a new way that an idea strikes you or seems far more significant than it did in the past upon further readings, once you begin to piece together how it fits into his broader philosophy and how each other idea affects every other. So um, it was helpful to me as well. Sometimes one of the best ways to learn is to teach. And um, I've, I will never think that I've exhausted everything that I could say about one of Nietzsche's books. Um, although, you know, you could easily come close. And there's only so much granular detail that is really valuable to, um, you know, understanding. I, I, for example, I, I might say I've gotten across all the major fundamental points of Nietzsche's philosophy at, the, at this point. The politics season even went further and branched off from Nietzsche into other sources that I think are kind of related, right? But um, that's because we were like covering this broad overarching topic of politics. Um, but it already kind of expanded beyond Nietzsche, even beyond Nietzsche's influences and those he directly influenced. And so like in season four, even though there's plenty to, more to talk about with Nietzsche, I would be perfectly... Um, willing to say that if you've listened to three seasons of the Nietzsche podcast and understood it all and internalized it, then you've pretty much got the, you, you have the, uh, the fundamentals of Nietzsche and hopefully with like a greater degree of clarity than if you just familiarized yourself with all of the major concepts of Nietzsche that are really famous on sort of individually and didn't really correlate all of that together which I, I hope and people have told me I've helped a lot of people do. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying, like, I'm the only way, like, <laughs> to understand Nietzsche or whatever. Uh, I'm not trying to come off that way. I'm just saying, like, assuming you took in the information, because it's a lot of Nietzsche quotes we've talked about and analyzed over the three seasons, um, pretty much all the major ideas are covered. So if somebody were to do that equivalent 
amount in reading and never listened to the podcast at all. I'd be also satisfied to say that. But um, we're kind of going into new territory this next season. I feel more freedom to explore uh, different things and branch off from the initial core of Nietzsche, even though I did find when planning out this next season, there are still quite a few of Nietzsche's influences that I feel obliged to talk about. Um, And they're the ones that are probably less discussed, um, you know, because obviously the ones we want to focus on first are going to be the influences like Schopenhauer and Goethe and Heraclitus and his relationship with Socrates and Plato. And then last season, Epicurus, Thucydides, um, and then who else? We even talked about Longa and Democritus and sort of some of these Nietzsche, these Nietzsche influences that are a little more offbeat from what you get in mainstream philosophical interpretations of Nietzsche, even though they're no less important, right? And in season four, we're going to be able to start talking about Giacomo Lopardi and uh, Spinoza and Pascal and Michel de Montaigne. Um, a lot of uh, influences on Nietzsche's thought that people are aware of, but like Emerson are sort of perpetually forgotten uh, and not given enough importance. Oftentimes, I think because people don't really comprehend the ways in which Pascal is a significant influence on Nietzsche because they seem so opposed, right? Uh, Like this ultimate Christian philosopher versus the anti-Christian philosopher. But that's, I mean, that's such a superficial analysis of why they they have a relationship or why Nietzsche feels um, actually an admiration for Pascal and sort of a a kindred spirit with him in a sense, even though he obviously disagrees with him on the Christianity thing. But in any case, we're going to to be able to get into more obscure topics, uh, sources that are entirely outside of Nietzsche, but which I feel there's some sort of comparison that can be drawn or some way that they will be... um, interesting or fascinating to an audience that I assume will have taken in the whole podcast up to this point. And then we'll be able to talk about, uh, I'm really excited for Deleuze. Uh, I'm planning on Freud and Jung as well. Uh, people that Nietzsche had an impact on. And we may be able to get to a couple other like influenced in that category, but those are the major ones that I've set out for myself in this, uh, upcoming season. So, uh, with all that being said, yeah, it's going to be, I think, uh, a very fun, uh, on the one hand, I want it to be almost like a fresh start for the podcast where, uh, I don't feel like I'm having to build and build upon, uh, subsequent premises in order to construct this whole picture of Nietzsche's philosophy anymore to represent it to you all in this Apollinean way, because that work has been done now. And so now I feel like we can just play. And so in some sense, that assumes that you're already familiar with Nietzsche's philosophy. But on the other hand, it's not going to be as much of a sequential story anymore. We're going to be a little bit more rhizomatic uh, if uh, the Deleuzians will know what I'm talking about there. So uh, I'm very excited for all of this. I think season four is going to be a, 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 a shift uh, in the podcast's um, tone and focus in a way. And uh, not that I haven't been happy with, you know, what we've been doing so far, but I, I don't want to be one of those uh, public intellectuals that just says the same thing over and over again, 
because that's boring. <laughs> and I want to continue to cover new and different interesting topics. And uh, it's not all just, you know, topics that I'm covering so that I can like force it into the same moral narrative structure or whatever, because that's never frankly interested me very much. So, you know, we'll, we'll have a few surprises in season four that I think some of them, the, the patrons voted on. So there's a couple things that the patrons know are coming up that they, uh, asked for. Um, one was like the top winner of the poll. And then the other was like the third most selected option. Um, so the patrons know what I'm talking about. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, you can go to patreon.com slash untimely reflections and, uh, sign up and support the Nietzsche podcast. Uh, there's exclusive content on there that only the patrons have access to, but the main thing you're getting is early releases of all the episodes. Um, I am, I'm not going to claim that I am the most, uh, I'm going to give you quick responses if you message me, but especially if you ask me a philosophical question or something you need clarification on, uh, as a patron, uh, that's one of the things I try to provide is being there to, to answer those kinds of questions and definitely give them priority over any of the other ways that people message me. Um, and sometimes that means, because I've uh, been had a very busy life of late, that if I want to actually give them a serious answer to a serious philosophical question, I'm not going to like flippantly fire some off and be like, that's interesting. Here's a stock answer. I don't want to do that. I want to actually take the time to give them a good answer if I can, which is, you know, sometimes I will tell people I genuinely don't know the answer to that. Um, but yeah, that's, so that's one of the, the perks. Um, and then also like the patron newsletter and all that. Um, sorry, you have to listen to me shill for my own Patreon, but you know, it's my own stuff. So it's technically not shilling. Um, so, you know, the, the main thing is that you would just get to, to support what we're doing here in the Nietzsche podcast and ensure that it, continues its existence for as long as humanly possible, which I intend to do as long as there are supporters out there. And thankfully they've, they've grown over the uh, now year and a half or so that we've been doing this. So I'm very happy about that. And so that's more or less the state of the podcast where we are. We're on the right on the edge before season four, we're going to have a short break and then we're going to have a bunch of content for you. Uh, as for what's been going on in my life, in the background of the podcast, as I mentioned, I've been doing a lot with my bands. Everyone who's a patron uh, knows all of this already from reading the newsletter and hearing my updates about it. But uh, just like with the first Wandering Above the Sea of Fog episode, I wanted to kind of just tell stories from my life or talk about what's been going on in my life in an audio form. And this summer was fairly busy for me. Uh, especially compared to what previous years have been like. I, I basically haven't had a year like this since 2018. So yeah, solid five years ago um, was the last time where I was this active in traveling and touring with the uh, with the band. And this that part of that's because I'm in two groups now that have both uh, been out on the road. And if you follow me on YouTube, you've probably seen the uh, tour documentaries that I've put up uh, from this year. There's been three of them this year. Two for Destroyer of Light, my original band, my old band, my main band, and then one for my new project, uh, Slumbering Sun. 
And I call it audiovisual collage. And what I mean by that is that I shoot clips of anywhere from five to 15 seconds, sometimes a little bit longer. I try to cut them down to that length um, that are snippets of things happening every day. Usually a half dozen to a dozen such clips are taken on a given day. And then I pick out the best ones. Sometimes they're somewhat repetitive. Uh, and so I try to find a clip that's most representative of the experience. And, you know, again, it's just audiovisual, so it doesn't convey the entire experience, but I want them in a way they're just like home movies, right? But in another sense, uh, there is something that is more intentional and artistic about them that is minimalist and just my attempt to convey put you into the experience of what it's like to be in an underground touring band that is out on the road and what it's like. And they contain the familiar auditory and visual experience of what that's like. And hopefully that your imagination would be able to bridge the gap. And I've done these uh, many times over the years and they've, I've caught on film or on video, some very funny moments, some sad moments, some dark or perversely humorous moments even, and also a lot of beauty, the beauty of the American countryside, a sort of documentation of the, the, the visual ambiance of America, like <laughs> at different parts of the country, and the sense of adventure and of traveling to a different place every single day and transitioning through these different environments and biomes and these cities that have a very different character to them and um, stepping into places which have a history or have a feel of that, that oldness. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe there's a better, more descriptive way that I could put it. And so... If you've seen any of those videos, then you're familiar with what I've been doing for the uh, past number of months. And basically what that was, it sort of started, the activity kicked off in March of this year. There's a, a South by Southwest event, a free event that all of the doom metal bands or stoner rock bands in Austin uh, like to play. Uh, it's sort of just like a big get together of friends. It's at the Far Out Lounge and Stage, which is down in South Austin. And my new band had our debut show at that uh, festival. And then immediately after uh, South by Southwest was over, we had a couple more shows that week. Um, Destroyer of Light, uh, my original band, went on tour uh, in April, March into April, I believe it was. Uh, then when we got back, uh, Slumbering Sun, the new band, started gigging very... Uh, extensively in Austin and San Antonio, and then we had our first tour in July. And this is during a time when, you know, this they call it like a heat dome was sitting over the south and the midwest or the plains region, and that's everywhere that we were going, right? And so it was excessively hot. Uh, thankfully, we had just fixed the air conditioning in the van before we went out on that trip or else it would have been absolutely miserable. Uh, because on the tour that we went on in March and April, you know, we were going out onto the East Coast, and so, 
you know, we went over to Atlanta and then up the East Coast all the way to New York and then over to like Pittsburgh and like Michigan and Chicago. And so everywhere we were at that time of year, uh, it wasn't exactly cold, but it, it wasn't really that hot. But already when once we were driving through the, the plains through Kansas and, you know, on our way to Tulsa, Oklahoma on that tour, there were some times where the AC just was not working properly uh, to where... Um, you know, if you, the engine was under a certain amount of strain, which it can get if you're trying to drive, you know, down the highway, pulling a trailer full of musical gear, uh, it would shut off and vent hot air into the cabin. It was the most horrible thing. It was like uh, the vent would, uh, vent inward from like the, uh, not the seat behind the driver's, uh, seat, but the one behind that. So sitting in that seat was just awful. Uh, so, um, you know, I had contributed some money to getting CDs made before that tour. And I said, don't pay me back, take that money and use it to fix the AC. And that ended up covering about half the cost of it, I think. So, uh, that made the tour in July, uh, much more, uh, <laughs> feasible for us. And so we went on that excursion and, it was really successful. It was probably one of the best. Um, I mean, it was much better than Destroyer of Lights for store. I'll tell you that. And part of that just has to do with everything that we've learned and the people we've met over the years. The fact that we're already able to go to some of these cities like Albuquerque and Denver and Tulsa and Fayetteville and people are greeting us there, you know, friends welcoming us with open arms because we've already built those relationships over the years. And so that was a lot of fun. Those dates were late July into first weekend of August. And then we had another run with Slumbering Sun at the end of August into September. And then I had a day <laughs> that we got back uh, from that run, uh, drove you know from Dallas to play a show in Austin on Saturday night. I slept for most of the day on Sunday, did some laundry, and then left on Monday to uh, drive to Florida over two days. And then we did a week uh, touring in Florida and Destroyer of Light playing in Atlanta again and, uh, New Orleans, probably the best show I've had in New Orleans. And, uh, it's just been nonstop. And then, you know, my other band got added to ripple fest at the last minute, which is a, a very nice, uh, local festival for, uh, that kind of music, doom, stoner metal. And, uh, we were very well received there. That was probably the biggest show that my new band has ever played. So that was, uh, that felt like a huge success in the first year of our existence to, uh, get to play at ripple fest and it hasn't even been a year of gigging and it's only been since like no november december of last year that we released our first single and our first live performance uh online and so it's really been remarkable the the response that we've gotten in that in that band I've, i'm very grateful for it but so we've had this sort of flurry of activity um in all of the hot months of the year <laughs> which do start in March uh, in Texas. But I've sort of gotten to travel all over during that time, which is also nice to get out of Texas for a while uh, during the hot season. And then now, uh, October, we are not leaving at all because the guitarist is on tour with her other band, Temptress. They're going to the West Coast for a very long tour. I've been on tours that length. They're doing like 36, 38 days, something like that. Uh, that is a that is an experience that will alter your perception of time at that point, <laughs> because, uh, and I know I've talked about this before, but the longer you're on tour, the more you are 
separated from a sort of weekly rhythm to your life, right? So like, let's say if you're working a 40 hour hourly position, you're going to have a certain weekly rhythm, even if you're getting scheduled on different days of the week, right? Um, there's still like, I have this number of days where I'm doing this, these number of days where I'm off. If you're working a nine to five job with a salary, um, you have even more regularity to your week. Um, and so there's regularity in the touring existence on the day-to-day basis. You wake up at a hotel or at someone's house, uh, usually sleeping until the late morning or early afternoon, and then you drive, um, however long it takes to get to the destination. You get there, unload your gear, find something to eat, play the show, and then go find somewhere to sleep, right? Every day is the same, but there isn't this sort of like weekly rhythm. And so the weeks kind of blur into one another and you kind of forget like what day it is sometimes and uh you don't have those day-to-day chores or obligations everything that you're doing is sort of just laid out for you (laughs) it's already been determined what you're gonna do when you wake up that day um you know occasionally you get to do something like go to a national park or go to a museum or uh go to some bar or restaurant that you really want to try but usually it's sort of that's that's only if time and location is sort of permitting, if that makes sense. So you have a really, you know, rigid schedule in a way. And oftentimes you have like a time that you're supposed to be in each city where you have to get there come hell or high water. And, you know, you still end up being late a lot of the time because the number of complications that can happen when you're crossing like three states and eight hours of travel time are pretty, pretty large. And, um, you know, when you're, again, hauling a trailer, you can't always go, you can't go 80 miles an hour. It's not really that safe. And so, uh, you don't always keep perfectly to the schedule, but, um, it can't be from lack of trying, right? Uh, you have to be, you're always, you're always, uh, hauling ass to get to the next place to, to, to speak with the vulgar as Nietzsche would say. And so, um, anyway, after a couple of weeks, you're, separated from the rat race is really the big thing. And yet you're still kind of in it. You're still in society, but you're not of society (laughs) anymore. Um, you're living in a completely different way. That's, uh, not comprehensible to most people where you're like, you know, brushing your teeth in a gas station sink or a parking lot really with a jug of water a lot of the time. And since every city you're visiting, you're going to be gone by the end of the night. You don't really have to uh, worry about your appearance with where you go. Um, and so there, there are just all of these things that about touring that sort of changes you when you're in that state of mind. Um, and so I know what that's like and I know what she's in for. And I know, I think they've toured about that long in the past, but, um, so I'm sure she's going to have the time of her, of her life, uh, our other guitarist out on that long tour with Temptress. And, uh, I know it's going to be like a huge experience. So I wish them all the best. Everyone go see them if you're in their area. Um, what else? Oh, and then our bass player is uh, playing in the Swedish band called Enforcer, and he's going to be in Europe, um, I think, for a couple weeks. And then um, he comes back, and then he flies out again, I want to say. All I know is he's going to be gone for... Uh, he's His dates are blacked out for all of October as well uh, while he's over playing shows in Europe, uh, with a, with a hair metal band and enforcer is, 
the new album they just put out called Nostalgia is really cool. I would also check uh, recommend checking that out and go catch them on their European dates if you're a European listener. So that's me plugging my own bandmates, but it's also, you know, um, that means Slumbering Sun can't do anything in the, the meanwhile, which is kind of good because we're going to work on material for a new record and you need those breaks uh, to really sit down and focus on writing and focus on the material and like fine tuning it and, and getting into the, the nuance of it. So that's what their remaining members will be doing while uh, Kelsey and Garth are out on the road. And I can't say I don't envy them, but I also know that I need this time. I need this time to work on forthcoming material for the band, but also to spend more time focusing on the podcast and uh, doing the necessary research and writing that's going to go into season four. And in the meanwhile, I do have a couple shows with my other band, with Destroyer of Light. Um, We've got uh, a Halloween show coming up, actually, which I'm very excited about. And it's been a long time since I've played like a, a good Halloween show, so I'm very much looking forward to that. But a couple of local shows compared to the intensity of activity that's been going on so far is really uh, nothing for me to worry about. And I'm I'm going to be able to, to have the spare time in my life where I'm not going to uh, rehearsal with two bands at a time in one week and always have another show week after week after week with one band or the other uh, to actually get into the nitty gritty and the nuances of writing good podcast episodes. Because, you know, uh, Beyond Good and Evil, it's tough to do an analysis of that book. But again, as I said, I've read it a bunch of times and you're not uh, necessarily, uh, it's a little, it's not as hard as writing an epi- a regular episode of the show doing one of those episodes for the simple fact that if I want to talk about any given concept in Nietzsche, I have to go and like do research about where else does this appear? I usually have like a number of passages that I've saved that I'm like on a given topic, right? And I've already written some things to myself, my own notes of my thoughts on this topic and comparing what Nietzsche says at different times and so on and so forth. But inevitably when I go and do research and the easiest way guys, just to give it away I have all the physical copies of the books, um, but uh, I also have them on PDF. And you can just do a word search and find out when a key word was mentioned. And that doesn't always lead to, you'll find places where it's like you're searching for something on a topic of a keyword and you'll find passages where you know, the word is used, but it's not really about that topic or it's only incidental to what he's talking about. But if you're thorough enough and you search through enough of Nietzsche's works, um, it's good. And then and oftentimes I'll then compare the translations with what I have in the PDF versus my physical copies. And that's very helpful to do that. And I always find that there are more passages Nietzsche said more on the topic than I had known or remembered, right? Or that I hadn't correlated all together. And so, uh, and usually this, because Nietzsche is such, such a complex thinker, there's always, there's almost always, you know, an initial statement that you could have, an initial syllogism you could put forward, um, maybe maybe not a syllogism, but just sort of a, a general overall sentiment that Nietzsche might have, or a stance that he takes, or a question that he raises, that characterizes the, the basic outline of his ideas in a given topic. But then almost always, either as his thought develops, or even sometimes in the same book, <laughs> on the same topic, he will complicate the issue and uh, and sometimes even contradict himself, but contradict himself in a very intentional way. Um, 
And, you know, to give an example of that, you might think of something like the free will idea, where if you start with human all to human, you could read Nietzsche as just a determinist. But by the time you get to Beyond Good and Evil, he's raised the issue that what we believe about free will is a psychological confession of who we are. And there, we could accept or reject free will based on a position of strength or a position of weakness. Um, and so that is a far more complicated view of free will that nevertheless sort of depends on the understanding of uh, the what might we say the superstitious nature of the libertarian free will belief and the moral and metaphysical nature of that belief and the critiques he's already made of free will along those lines. I think are sort of required or they enrich one's understanding when then they come to Nietzsche's comments on free will and beyond good and evil. But, uh, you know, it's like if you just state some aspect of his views on free will without correlating it with the whole, it's almost like an in inaccuracy, right? Like you're almost giving an, a misrepresentation or a misinterpretation. And, uh, I think this accounts for many of the recurring misrepresentations of Nietzsche's philosophy that we have and that still still recur <laughs> is that people um, look at his ideas in isolation and even people who think that they're expanding and correlating his one idea to every other often don't do it sufficiently and I'm not going to give specific examples or defend this point because uh, I don't want to it's just my opinion deal with it so um, in any case that's why the the regular episodes and the the experience I try to try to give uh, to the audience in the course of a regular season episode is much more difficult than when I'm just going through one of Nietzsche's books because that is it's sort of like a very a linear structure that's already been given to me whereas the structure of how I'm going to approach some of Nietzsche's ideas um, is often one of the first and the most difficult questions that I have to answer when structuring these episodes is like, what is the structure going to be? What is the narrative arc of this episode going to be? And a philosophical lecture does have a narrative arc, by the way. <laughs> um, the best ones do anyway. Uh, the one that's what I always uh, aim to achieve. Of course, sometimes I get it better than other times. We'll just say, uh, but that's always the goal is to, um, structure this presentation of Nietzsche's ideas in such a way that it takes you on a journey because that's how I feel when I'm reading Nietzsche and so that it's not easy is all I'm saying and in a way getting really uh, deeply into the guts of one of Nietzsche's books as difficult as that could seem is actually a lot easier just because the structure's already there and I already kind of know what the like linear narrative of each episode is going to be and how it's going to unfold because the book has already decided that. Um, so that's another reason that I'm looking forward to this little break from my musical projects. And another thing that I know many of you know, if you're, if you've been following along with the podcast for a long time is that this podcast was basically born near the latter days of the pandemic out of the fact that I wasn't able to tour and pursue the normal musician's life anymore. And I had that break where I was able to uh, focus on some other creative uh, endeavors. 
And so now balancing the two has been very difficult. And so having these sort of um, ups and downs in activity in my different creative projects, whenever one is uh, sort of fades into the background of my life, another can come to the foreground. And it's actually pretty nice in that way that I always have something that I'm working on. Times it can be exhausting where I feel like I'm burning myself out, but that's why I take a week off here and there these days. And it's also just the unfortunate reality that, um, you know, when you're busy and active all the time, you know, it, it can be exhausting, but when I know that whenever I am passive in my life and whenever I just let myself, you know, just fall into too much recreation and uh, just work the bare minimum that I need and spend the rest of the time just entertaining myself, it's not as fulfilling. And, you know, uh, for me, for example, with Nietzsche's considerations on pain and pleasure and sort of his idea of mankind as needing a goal, needing something to uh, induce us to transform ourselves or overcome ourselves, or that really that that kind of activity uh, and self-overcoming is what the point of life is. I know that's like a really <laughs> vulgar way to put it, and I kind of was like uh, re repulsed by it as I said it, of like, like who am I to say what the point of life is? But we'll just say that's like Nietzsche's opinion is self-overcoming is the essence of life, we'll say. And when you're living in such a way that it's aimed at self-overcoming, you have that sense of fulfillment. But that fulfillment is like not a static contentment, right? Because that would mean that you could come to a halt and still have that feeling. It's found in motion. And it's found in the pursuit of the goal, in in the journey, in the adventure, right? And as soon as the adventure is over, as soon as the, in the case of an adventure film, when the quest is fulfilled and the hero defeats the adversary and he t takes the treasure or whatever, you know, claims a new power for himself or whatever it might be, or, you know, finally, you know, falls in love with the woman of his dreams. Uh, and then they lived happily ever after, <laughs> right? Fade to black, right? Because why, why don't we have a whole film about the happily ever after? Well, that's boring. And there you have it, right? <laughs> uh, pleasure, in some sense, is boring, is, is one way that you could put Nietzsche's point. And I have definitely lived my life over the past number of years as an experiment and how far I can push that, the opposite, right, of saying, okay, um, pursue my artistic, creative philosophical, literary, whatever those types of goals, um, to the maximum that I can, and that I have the energy to do. Um, obviously we need time for rest and recreation to recreate ourselves. Right. But you know, to not to make that my goal is my entertainment. My pleasure is not actually the goal because pleasure is boring at the end of the day, that realization. And therefore constantly aiming at self-overcoming in a way, at my own self-transformation, uh, and just doing that through my art and my productivity, right? It's not my, it's not a, a physical productivity, as Goethe said, was the sort of the highest, but the, the productivity of somebody like Goethe, plays and poems, 
right? Um, or in my case, uh, songs instead of poems and uh, philosophical lectures instead of plays, but ones that attempt to take you on that sort of narrative journey. And so I guess in that spirit, uh, this episode will contain an announcement, something I'm very excited about. And I'm going to do a, a whole episode just on this. Um, it'll be a sort of like a bonus episode, you could say. But I'm publishing a book. And I know I've mentioned this either on Patreon or just in passing, but I wanted to talk about it a little bit more. I have John Hunt to thank for putting me in touch with the right people, with this publisher. They uh, agreed after reading over my manuscript. And my book, The Ritual Madness of Rock and Roll, is going to be coming out in May of next year, 2024. I'm incredibly excited. Uh, I had shopped an earlier version of this manuscript around to some publishers, or I'd inquired to a bunch of literary agents. None of them ever got back to me. Um, the ones that did just said, no, we don't have time for you. And uh, <laughs> I sent an earlier version of the manuscript to an indie publisher uh, who just took open submissions when I couldn't find a literary agent. And it was actually a publisher who had published a couple of books that I have on my shelf that I had read. And, um, you know, like they had like three readers look it over and two to one, they voted against uh, publishing my book or sending it to the next round. Um, so that was a bit disappointing, but a couple of things happened. So I, I decided the manuscript might need a little bit more work, but I was kind of burned out because I'd already revised it four or five times at that point, it had gone through a couple different incarnations. But um, I decided to let it sit for a little while. And then I was playing a show with my other band, Abject Terror, that is broken up now, uh, down in San Antonio. And I uh, met a friend there who he was selling, he was, he was working a table, they had like sort of like a little bizarre type marketplace in the courtyard of the venue we were playing uh and then the show was going on inside so there was like a record store out there there were like people selling like handbags and 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 tapestries and stuff and then there was this little like indie publisher and they had some books that they were selling and this guy i know is like a bartender down in uh, in san antonio he was like yeah i'm selling two of my books through this publisher and i said hey i wrote a book would you publish me and I kind of talked to the lady who, who ran this indie publisher and she was super nice. And I didn't know, I was like, it looks like a lot of your books are really short. I mean, this is a, a longer manuscript. Is this something you'd be interested in? She said, yeah, we would. And then, um, it took a long time to get communication established via email. I think a lot was going on in her life at the time. And by the time she got back to me, I had kind of, I don't know what, but I was just like, oh, I'm not interested. Um, it was like months and months later and I decided against it. I was like, I don't want to have this published through them. I'll either just self publish it or I'll find like a publisher to actually, uh, that's not just like a print house, right? <laughs> it's actually going to put this out and market it and, and care about it. I, I want to have that or I can just publish it myself on Amazon or whatever. But I was like, I'm going to let this sit and then I'm going to come back and revise it a little bit more. So I revised it again, and then I had it edited yet again. I have like three different people, sets of eyes, looked at this manuscript. And then uh, I think, honestly, um, the the podcast is what's getting this book published. 
because at this point uh, now there might be an interest in reading uh, something that is semi-autobiographical about my life and contains my own philosophical ideas. And before this podcast, uh, there was not an audience for that necessarily. Now I think that there is. Um, so, but for whatever the reason, I mean, I would hope that the reason is because I wrote a good manuscript. Um, they said, yeah, we're down to take you on. And as I said, it's coming out May of next year and it's called the ritual madness of rock and roll. And what it's about is it's a recounting of our, my band destroyer of light touring in Europe for the first and only time back in 2019. And so it'll, it's going to be coming out five years, like to the month from the time of that tour, which is kind of interesting. Um, like a snapshot of like a, you know, three weeks I spent on the road five years ago, but contained in that is my ideas about art and a philosophy of aesthetics. It's the subtitle is an inquiry into aesthetics. One of my main influences was Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, which is a narrative story, but it's a true story. And uh, one of the things the author says, Robert Persig, is that, you know, he's got these characters, I believe they're named Jack and Sylvia. And he's like, I didn't want to exaggerate character traits or turn them into these like one or even two or three dimensional figures, right? Human beings have infinite dimensions. I don't know if he puts it exactly like this, but they're, they're not characters, right? Sylvia is not a character. She's Sylvia. So I'm not going to try to exaggerate some trait or create artificial conflicts that didn't actually happen when we were on this motorcycle trip to have like artificially inserted drama or like cardboard cutouts of like a character archetype so that the audience can identify like, Oh, he's that type of person or she's that type of person. He actively didn't do this. And he says that he's not doing this. And so I was inspired by that. Um, I believe the man's name also is Michael Nosgaard. I read his book some time ago called my struggle, <laughs> but it's just, it, it's like, uh, I believe the French call this school of writing like auto fiction or something like that, where it's like just a, a very detailed, honest, uh, gritty look at the events of your life. And that's more or less what he wrote. It was a very honest book, very controversial book. I don't know if I'm going to have anything, uh, all that controversial in this text in the ritual madness of rock and roll. But I was inspired by that method of, I can just tell the story. It's like a real story. In a way, it's sort of like my audio-visual collages I was mentioning. Just tell a true story and um, kind of show the beauty of the mundane and bring people into the experience of being in the setting, of helping them to imagine what it would have been like to be there. Don't create these artificial character traits or conflicts. And even though the conflict, I, I realized upon looking back over it, there was a conflict there, mainly one within myself. That conflict, roughly speaking, is one that many artists have to deal with. Um, and it's the, roughly speaking, the question, why the hell am I doing this? <laughs> because the artistic life is not financially rewarding. It is not, practically speaking, the kind of life that somebody should uh, pursue. It's not, uh, it's not going to get you a high social status or high monetary reward or any sort of like utilitarian ability to take care of yourself or others or start a family or anything like that. Um, 
to the extent that you're going to be able to do those things, it's probably going to be from some way that you've either monetized that talent in a way that has nothing to do with the creativity, the actual artistic inspiration and expression, right? Being a session musician or playing cover songs or uh, being a studio engineer or taking photographs for bands. There are all sorts of ways you can make money out of the music industry. Uh, pretty much none of them have to do with starting a band yourself and going on tour. Uh, now, you can do what we've done for many years and reach a point very easily, I think, if you're professional and you take your craft seriously and you put on a good show and you make quality merchandise and you tour diligently, you can sustain the project on its own fuel, so to speak. You can make it a perpetual motion machine where you're not constantly spending your own money to keep the thing moving. It sustains itself. But if you want to pay yourself a salary out of it, that is, I mean, you think about that. What would it take for you to be able to pay yourself even you know, I was going to say like forty or fifty thousand dollars a year out of your music, but um, even getting twenty thousand a year out of it for four or five members, I mean that's already verging on like you need you need like a hundred thousand dollars a year uh, income in addition to all the other expenses and the money for the band's future projects. Um, most bands can never do that, right? the The arts are the most brutally hierarchical human endeavor that exists, which is funny because artists are always so, um, you know, we, we like to blur boundaries and uh, invert categories and compare and contrast them and uh, smash things together, uh, set to apparently alien elements next to one another and s separate the apparent, you know, separate apparently similar things into dualities and so on and so forth. That's all what art is. And so, artists often don't want to look at this and acknowledge the fact that um, we're far more, I don't even think a Pareto distribution can accurately cover how brutal the arts are because, you know, in a lot of other industries, it's far more evenly distributed, even if there is massive inequality versus the top of the bottom, right? Of the most successful to the least successful in a given industry In the arts and in music it's uh, it's downright futile. <laughs> you have a few superstars and then a, a mass of zeros that don't even aggregate into anything, who are not um, taking up really any significant amount of attention or, or uh, making any significant amount of financial gain out of their efforts. That's so you're entering into like the most brutal struggle for the feeding ground that exists when you become an artist. And most of us fail and most of us are disappointed with the outcome. And that tour of Europe, I was already sort of questioning what I was doing. But of course, because I also have read all this philosophy and that's very much on my mind, it became more of a clinical question for me. I was able to take the question away from myself and say, okay, what are we doing when we're making art? And I know this question People have attempted to answer it, and I discuss at length many past approaches to the question of what is art. Uh, there's a Tolstoy essay, essay by the name What is Art, which is uh, amazing and I highly recommend that uh, I read, and that moved me very much, became a huge influence on my thought. Uh, also, I talk very much about the work of Socrates, the anti-artistry of Socrates, discuss a little bit about Schopenhauer and Nietzsche's views on art, of course, have to address uh, the uh, Death of the Author essay by Roland Barthes, um, which is, 
I think, a uh, very wrong-headed approach, but I, I kind of explain why I think he comes to the conclusions that he does uh, psychologically and uh, sort of like what the meaning of Barth is as a as a phenomenon, right? And then a little bit about the work of Carl Jung. And there's some anthropological stuff in there. I talk about Wittgenstein, uh, the ideas of uh, Ernst Kesserer and uh, Eusner, who uh, Eusner was a philologist who was an opponent of Nietzsche's, actually. A little bit about uh, William von Hippel's book, which is a more contemporary book. Um, and I didn't actually, I cut this part out, but the work of Eric Gans uh, was influential on me as well. And sort of understanding uh, there was, you know, trying to wrestle with this question of kind of how art even emerged anthropologically in man's prehistory and what function that it served. Uh, also the work of Fritz Stahl, a very fascinating uh, sort of uh, conclusion that he came to when analyzing these Vedic hymns uh, that are some of the oldest in the world that people still like repeat in this annual ritual. So all these questions were uh, on my mind and I wrote extensively on this in my notebooks while we were touring. And one of the blessings of that tour was that we didn't have very good uh, cell coverage. You know, back in the early days when I first started touring back in 2012, the first tour we did, I didn't even have a cell phone. I think I got a pay as you go uh, phone where texting each text cost me like 21 cents or something. So I'd never texted and phone calls, they charged you by the minute. And, um, it was just like a little flip phone because I'd never had a cell phone. I was like a Luddite towards cell phones and, and smartphones. I did not have a smartphone in 2012, which is kind of a, a it's, it's a, an amazing thought to me actually now that I've been doing, I've been using the smartphone for like less than 10 years especially now thinking that there are kids who have been raised with the damn things. But um, not that I hate smartphones. I'm, you know, I've used the, the powerful tools on this little mini computer in my pocket to uh, greatly improve my ability to, you know, for example, get out this podcast, facilitate making the podcast. That's, that's one thing it's very good for and I am very grateful for. But, um, you know, I didn't have that when we first started touring. And so that's one of the reasons why I was reading books so much because, you know, the, the, the smartphone's an addictive thing. <laughs> and uh, the more and more I got into using one, uh, you know, it would sometimes cut into your time reading. Now, there's only so much time you can spend reading when you're on the road. Sometimes you're on a bumpy road and like reading is genuinely just too hard to do. Sometimes it does make you car sick. I don't typically get car sick, but sometimes when I'm trying to read and I'm already feeling like a little you know, gross, you know, cause it's very easy to get sick on the road. You can, it can compound that feeling. And you know, when it's dark and you're traveling late at night, you, you know, you can have a re little reading lamp, which I had, but you know, and then I would lose it and I have to get another one. Then I'd lose that one. You lose things in the black hole of the, the, the floor of the van. Right. <laughs> and, uh, or things get broken or, uh, you know, so on and so forth. It's just, you can't always, you can't always do it. But it was always a temptation, right? To, uh, let me just go distract myself with some YouTube video or something. And so it's nice that uh, in on the European tour, it was like the tours of old because our cell coverage was so terrible that when we're driving, you know, across Italy or France 
for all intents and purposes, you have no soul coverage. The Italians, the band we were with, they had soul coverage, but we didn't. So I brought my bag of books and, you know, it's like I revisited some old philosophy. I read World is Will and Representation for the first time on that tour. Um, really, I read like three quarters of it, but I, I couldn't finish it. I, it was like a year later that I went back and finished that book. But, um, you know, uh, which was fun to read Schopenhauer. Again, that's one of those dark, those autumn people, right? And reading him in dark, dreary Germany, reading this dark, dreary German philosopher. I remember very distinctly driving across uh, Germany that first day, and it was bleak and rainy and just wet and gross. And, <laughs> you know, the wind was chilly and uh, reading Schopenhauer and with, you know, sort of like looking out at this like sort of the, these like little towns that you would pass by with their their chimneys puffing these little white billows of smoke up over the the black sort of pine trees and the sky is just like this gray sheet's been thrown over everything and there's this, this mist in the air um and so i describe our voyage across europe and the fact that i was personally struggling with why am i doing this and the philosophical side of the book is the question, why do people value art and pursue art? If, if we were to approach this question like an alien <laughs> looking at human beings, I don't think they would understand what it was. Okay, what are these, what this group of nine humans in this van, what are they doing? What are they getting out of this? They go and they blast sound waves at people in a different city every night and people will come to this and they like it or like, what is this fulfilling about? Are they making, like, are they making a money on this? Are they making a living? Well, no, not really. Right. <laughs> so, um, and the, even the thing is that even people who succeed don't really succeed a lot of the time. Uh, you need to be packing small arenas to really be feeding yourself as a musician and paying your rent. And even then that can be, that can come and go like a flash in the pan your expenses can just exceed your your revenue in so many ways. You can get screwed over by you know venues taking a thirty or forty percent cut of your merch that you're selling, or you know once you become a bigger band, then you have the instinct to get well. Time for us to get a tour bus, and it's like the immediately your expenses line goes way up, and even if you're making twice as much money, you know, you're spending one and a half times as much money. So there are just all these ways that, uh, all these impediments to success and a lot of even the really famous musicians. Like, uh, I remember seeing an article with, uh, the Deftones where they were saying, we can't afford to not tour. Like we got bills to pay, right? They've lived up to a certain standard of living and, you know, they're trying to put their kids through college and stuff and even if they want to, they can't really stop. They have to keep that revenue coming in. So it's it's brutal, is another way of saying it. It's hard and most people never succeed and it doesn't make any sense. And I try to make sense of it. And in order to make sense of it, the entire history of humanity and our relationship with art and to a large part also, the, our relationship with language plays greatly into this book. And in the end, I feel I have some answers and ironically enough, end up kind of returning to Socrates and, but also to Nietzsche and, and to Tolstoy and a lot of my um, favorite authors and influences on my thought. 
I also quote from a couple of musicians sort of as a dedication to that, that book and throughout the work, uh, to, um, just look at the way so many people have, um, conceived of what they were doing and what the role of the musician is and, uh, what the meaning of it is. And I, I think I've come to a theory that I'm sure, I'm sure somebody has to have thought of. It would be shocking to me if there wasn't, um, something approximating this theory, but I think I've done a good job of putting it forward rather comprehensively of a theory of art that I think makes the most sense. And it's a snapshot of my life is the other thing. It's a brief moment of my life. It begins and ends exactly at the uh, beginning and end of that tour. And it has a, there's a couple of sort of descriptions of things that have happened in the past in order to make the audience understand, I guess, the possible stakes of the story that I had quit the band before I had considered, I tried to like, just, uh, throw off the musical life and not do it anymore for about half a year. I was like, I'm done. I can't do this. And I didn't end up coming back, but that was always on my mind of, was it a mistake? Was it a mistake? I'm not, you know, the clash song. Should I stay or should I go? I wasn't happy when I went. I'm not happy when I'm doing it. Uh, what am I getting out of this? What is the answer here? Why did I leave? And why did I come back? I was thinking a lot of, about those questions because I should just say our tour of Europe was perhaps the most exhilarating and the most frustrating event of my life. <laughs> like the peaks of both of those things at the same time, never have I, I've, I ever had an experience like that before where the tour that the record label set up for us was just completely stupid. It was, um, you know, Europe, there are so many large, cities, metropolitan areas and venues and such a huge music culture there. There is absolutely no reason for you to be doing a nine hour drive and then a 10 hour drive, then an 11 hour drive and a 13 hour drive, like day after day after day after day, which is more or less what they had planned for us. This crazy route that uh, took us all over the place and oftentimes didn't even really make sense where at one point we pretty much drove to one side of France to play one show, then drove all the way back to the other side to play another show. And <clears throat> several of the shows got canceled. You know, our show on, uh, you know, we had, we finally started to hit our stride when we got into like central, like to Germany and uh, uh, go up to Denmark and Sweden. But then shows, show start getting canceled again. Like our Sunday show in Gothenburg got canceled. Probably pronounced that wrong, but. Swedes, your language is hard to pronounce. I'll tell you that. So, uh, nevertheless, though, we met all sorts of amazing people. The band that we were on tour with, they were sweethearts. We love those guys to this day. We met Davide Stracchioni, who's our driver. He was uh, an amazing guy. He kind of helped that tour uh, succeed. To He made it work. Uh it was it was sort of in spite of the people who booked it that we made the tour work and and Davide was one of the people who got us through that um who was just on top of it and so there were so many aspects of it that were just planned really badly and that we like had to salvage in the moment and times where i thought there was one point where it looked like we were about to be out on the street where we didn't have a place to stay we couldn't get into the uh, apartment where we were supposed to stay and nobody's answering the phone and like we don't know what we're doing. Uh, there were times when shows were getting canceled the week of or the day of, 
and we're, but then also we scrambled to put together other shows and we had friends that we met who were like, okay, uh, we'll get you a uh, show at this other place. And, uh, it was just crazy. And at the, at the same time I had maybe, I would say four of the best shows of my life. Um, not necessarily like the biggest, but very well attended shows with great energy in like in Europe and, uh, where people seemed to be genuinely blown away by what we were doing and, you know, getting to play with like some of my favorite bands like Mesa, Great Electric Quest and, um, a couple others. So all of that being said, very exhilarating. It was, you know, a, a great adventure, but just so many things went wrong. And I decided that was, you know, it, the origin of all this was I started out writing a manuscript of every single tour that I'd ever did. This is going to be my memoir. That was the very beginning of the pandemic, like 2020. When everything got canceled, I couldn't do anything. I wrote and wrote and wrote and said, I'm going to commit this to memory because I realized that even the more recent tours I'd done, just talking in conversation with some of my friends and bandmates, there were like details, little details I couldn't remember. And I realized these memories are not going to stay with me. You've done hundreds, if not thousands of shows at this point, and they all start to blur together. And you're not going to remember all this. You have to write it down. Even if no one cares, <laughs> even if it's never something you publish, you have to write it down. And so I told myself that, and I started writing this whole thing. And it was like, 500 pages in word. It was like half a million words, basically. I just wrote this whole thing in, you know, not entirely in one go. I would come back to it until I completed every major tour that we'd done, basically. But that became like my story Bible. It's totally unpublishable. It's unreadable, really. Um, but it's, it's basically just me getting the memories and thoughts out of my head and committing them to the page so that at least whatever I can remember right now is in some way preserved so that if I want to come back and write a more polished story from any of those memories or write more autobiographical material. And I do, I do have plans to do that, by the way, I have like this story Bible. And out of that, I decided the European tour back in 2020, I'm like, that was the most recent tour I had done, right? It was in 2019. I guess we'd had a couple of runs in late 2019 with Paul Bearer, but that was the the last big one we'd done before the world kind of shut down. And so I had that thought of like, as I've talked about before, is this coming back or not? Are people going to still be into <laughs> going to live music in this brave new world? And thankfully that turned out to not be true that there still is a live music scene. There still is a tour circuit. It's, Going, it's gone crazier than ever. It's harder than ever to get a to get shows booked on the road because you have to do it four or five, six months out now because there's just so much activity. But blah blah blah. I picked out the European tour because it was the most recent. I was like, this is going to be the best, most pristine memory for me to commit in detail to the page right now. And it was like the height of disappointment, but also amazement and beauty and adventure and. Uh, so that's why it was that tour that I ended up selecting. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just so happened that in writing about that, I was like, I should go back and look at my notebooks. And I'm, 
I'm still revisiting these same issues that I had written about on a lot of tours. I was obsessed with a while with that Roland Barthes essay, The Death of the Author, because it just felt wrong to me. And I, you could construe the entire inquiry as a lengthy polemic against Roland Barthes, um, but that's sort of a, that's me being tongue-in-cheek. Really what it is is he was a, a useful antipode, as Nietzsche says in Beyond Good and Evil. It's how amazing to have our antipodes for me to oppose my viewpoint with and that helped me flesh out what my viewpoint really was it helped me discover who i was by attacking barths and you know that doesn't come into like almost like the third or fourth to last among the essays that are contained in this novel um but so you know i took the material the bare bones of it the drafts and i greatly greatly expanded it from what was initially there um, so that was the liberty that I took with the, the philosophy that's in the book. The philosophy sort of coming from me in the future in a way. Um, it's the polished version. Whereas much of the text of my recounting the day-to-day -day events that happened, you know, those initial drafts were written like, you know, seven, eight months after the fact. Um, and I had even, I think, considered... Because I, I had done some experiments in writing about my tours instead of just documenting them with, you know, video footage, um, as early as like 2016, and uh, I think I made a lot of stylistic mistakes in doing that, and it was a little too, um, it was a little too self-important and melodramatic. And I, this one, I really aimed to uh, realism in the mundane. And I think uh, it worked really well. And I think at least the podcast audience is going to be interested in it. So uh, that's, you know, uh, I'll do a whole episode when we get closer to the release date where I'm going to read a chapter or two from the book and uh, sort of talk about the background of the book and, and what it's about in more detail. But for those of you who have you know, are willing to listen to one of these episodes that's uh, unscripted and just me updating you on the the state of the podcast and on my life, and you've made it all the way to like almost an hour and a half in listening to me just pitch my book to you. Uh, hopefully, you'll be in the target audience for this uh, this book, and uh, we'll sign up for a pre order because that would be really helpful to me. But uh, obviously, on the RSS feed and YouTube, as this gets closer to the release date, I'll keep updating everybody about this so that everyone knows. So with that, uh, we're going to transition to the final part of this episode, and I'm going to tell you a story. It's not a story from the book that's coming out, uh, although I do write about it in that story Bible that I mentioned. Um, it's something that I think about uh, every time that we go into autumn and Halloween season, uh, because it was the best Halloween that I ever had, or one of the best, um, probably the most memorable. We were on tour in 2014 on the East Coast, and it had been a chaotic but very gratifying tour up to this point. This was one of those, like, I think 38-day tours that um, we were out on the road for like six and a half weeks, and we were pretty much right in the middle <laughs> of this really long outing. And our tour manager, Sarah, had been with us for this whole first half of the journey, but due to personal factors, things that were going on in her life... And then a little bit of conflict with one of the other members uh, who was, you know, when you're on tour, you're all sharing a space that's very small and packed together. 
And so uh, if there's a personality conflict, it can be rather insufferable for all parties. And so after the show in New York City, Sarah tells us, uh, I need to fly home. And, uh, you know, like I said, there were different reasons for this, but we all understood. We were like, okay, that's fair enough. And uh, so she told us after the show in Philadelphia, um, she's needs a ride to the airport and she's heading back to Denver. And, you know, we used to call each other brother and sister. And it was, uh, it was sad that she was leaving. And she did a lot for us when we were on the road, you know, running merch, helping to load in, basically dealing with all the business side of things, which, you know, it's probably intuitively understood by everybody, but musicians aren't all that good at business. Um, the more that I've had to run the business side of, you know, uh, like Slumbering Sun, my project, I've had to run the entire business side of that, and I'm just terrible at it. But, um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that my attention is pulled in so many directions, and you know, the podcast is so central in my life now. But uh, what was I saying? So, you know, she, she added a lot on the road, but um, you know, she had to go and we understood. So we go to play like our last show and the shows have been decent of, over the last couple days. But another thing to understand about these long tours is y- your mood is kind of probably going to be based on the fact of how good the shows have been. And that every night it's sort of, you know, I'm not going to say random, obviously, how how well attended the show is going to depend on who are you playing with locally? Did they do their job in promoting it? Did the venue do their job in promoting the show? Uh, are there other bigger shows going on the same night right down the street or on the other side of town? Are there three other shows going on that night that are in the same genre? And so on and so forth. Uh, or, you know, one of the things I often tell new bands that are trying to get on the road, go to the smaller college towns on the weekends hit those smaller markets on the weekends. On the weeknights, that's where you go to the bigger city, right? Ideally, don't play Brooklyn if you're like a new up-and-coming band on your first tour. Don't play Brooklyn on Friday night. There's a million things going on in Brooklyn on Friday night. Play Brooklyn on Wednesday or Thursday night <laughs> when because you're already in the city that never sleeps. You're, you're going to have probably more of a better shot of getting people's attention or getting people out to the show in a large city with an active scene playing on a weeknight, especially if there's like some promoter running some regular event on the weeknights and they book you with some cool local bands, you're just, you just have less competition on those nights. And then you hit the college town on the weekend on Friday, a town with like, you know, a hundred thousand people in it or 20,000 people in it, or maybe even less than that. And you're the only musical act going on in the whole county. You know, uh, everyone's going to come to your show. And so we learn things like that. But so the, the aspect of touring of your mental state is that every day you're driving and spending money on gasoline. So there's, there's a cost of every mile that you're traveling. So every day has a cost because you're traveling every day. And then that cost can even be compounded by hotel and uh, food. Now, if the venue buys you a meal, which every good venue should really do for a touring band, and they take care of like at least a couple of your drinks at the bar, and then they pay you really well with a food buyout, or, may, or enough to get like you know gas and hotel, that's great. Um, sometimes though, 
you know, you just don't make that amount of money. You could even have a well-attended show, but there's a lot of bands playing and you got to pay out the bar staff and you just don't make that much money. That's why you've also are selling merch because that's really your, your bread and butter. Cause all of that comes to you no matter what. Uh, now of course you had to make an initial investment of the cost of all that merch in order to get it in the first place. So, you know, when you get handed 20 bucks for a t-shirt, uh, that's not 20 bucks of profit. It's $20 of revenue, right? I know this is all really basic stuff, but every day has a cost, an operating cost, and you have to meet that cost. So when you have like a really bad show, um, and you're like below meeting that cost, that means that day has, has ultimately detracted from the success of the tour, right? Um, so with this whole thing, the, the, the principle of happiness being found in like the pursuit of your goal and how well you're doing at pursuing that goal. Each day, as I was saying, it's got all these factors behind it, but as far as you don't always know what you're walking into from day to day, right? And it is, can feel like it's at random. What I mean by this is you could easily have it be where you hit a string of days where they're all good shows and you're in a great mood. And then that way, you know, if you've already had like four great shows in a row and then you have one kind of lame show, that one doesn't get you down as much, especially if the night after is good and then you have another string of good shows. It could just as easily happen that you could flip a coin, you know, flip a goddamn coin and have one day of a great show, then a shitty show the next day, and then another amazing show, and then another terrible show. It's entirely possible as well. It's also possible that you have like three or four terrible shows in a row. And because, again, your experience is kind of more centered on the present moment because you're not part of this weekly rhythm that can really throw you off mentally where you're just absolutely like, uh, uh, why am I doing this? I, <laughs> I just want to crawl into a hole and die. I don't want to go to another empty club and just sit there and nurse a beer and wait for people to show up and they never do. Um, you know, that's, that's a terrible feeling when it happens multiple times in a row. And so our shows had been kind of decent, but when they're kind of on edge, you know, where it's like, let's say that you have a couple shows that have like 20, 30 people at them, but it's like Tuesday and Wednesday night, Thursday night, you know, maybe you have a little more on Thursday and it's a city you've never been to. You can kind of justify those shows by if like the Friday night's really good. You're like, okay, those were the best we could scrape out of that weekday acceptable that they were kind of underwhelming, but maybe you make enough that it's like breaking even, right? If you break even for a couple days, you're really waiting for the weekend to be something amazing. <laughs> and then when you have a terrible show, it kind of undermines the days where you broke even. So that was kind of what happened in Philadelphia. We played at this place called Kung Fu Necktie. Um, and Philadelphia, if, if you've never been, like, it's kind of a rough city. And I know, I mean, at least the area around Kung Fu Necktie is pretty rough. Um, I know there's probably much rougher parts. I know there are probably parts that are much, uh, feel a lot more, like, safe. But, you know, there's just, like, trash everywhere. I remember, like, seeing, like, the trash cans are just, like, overflowing up to the brim and spilling onto the street and, like... The drivers there are super aggressive, um, you know, like 
the light turns green and you're not immediately like going, you'll get honked at. And, uh, there's just kind of like a, a vibe in Philadelphia that's really harsh. And so if we were going and always consistently playing great shows there, I would not have a problem with it or I would like just tolerate it when it's like, oh, we have to go to Philadelphia and we, I don't think we literally have ever, I don't think I've played a good show in Philadelphia in my life that was like actually attended by anybody. Now it's weird because I know other bands that are like on the same like tier as we are who have had good shows in Philadelphia and I'm like, oh, that's great. I love it. And so like, and I know bands from there who are really awesome people. I'm just saying as an objective fact, like no judgment, never had a good show there. Um, so that always kind of, you know, it brought us down, <laughs> right? After having some mediocre shows that week. And then we get, get to the hotel that night and it's, you know, we just find a cheap motel and we go up, our room is on the second floor and we open the door with a key card, go inside. Everyone's joking about checking the beds for, you know, needles and syringes and blood stains because sometimes you find that stuff in cheap hotels. So we're kind of like laughing, joking about it. We, did, we didn't find anything like that. But then I'm kind of, well, the first thing we noticed actually is that the there's a TV stand but there's no TV. Like you can see the little stem of what the, the TV, the flat screen used to sit on, but it's been unscrewed and the TV's gone. And I, then we're all kind of like looking around and I'm kind of like shivering. I'm like, why am I so cold in here? I should turn up the heat a little bit on the, the thermostat on the little AC unit, which normally they have like a little unit set into the wall in a lot of these places. Right. And I look over and there's just a rectangular void, like a hole in the wall open to the elements, like to the, to the balcony on the outside, just open to the air. The AC unit is, is just gone and there's just a cutout. <laughs> and so that's why it was so cold in the room. So we march back downstairs, Sarah, it's her last day of being our tour manager and she has to deal with this. So she goes up to the dude uh, at the front desk who's just he's behind this like window like he's dealing with customers through glass uh because i guess at that time of night that's the safer thing and he gives us another key card to another room apologizes so we're walking up to this other room the other guys are pulling the van around and it's me jeff and sarah and i've got the room key for some reason they've handed it to me and jeff actually says watch there's going to be someone else in this room you know because we're laughing at how silly this whole situation was like and uh so i scan the key card and open the door walk in and yeah there's like an old woman like in her 90s like taking off her makeup and an old man laying in the bed and i don't think either of them actually even saw me or registered they didn't look at me as i opened the door and just automatically, I'm just like, whoops. And I just let the doorknob go and just the door just slammed shut and turned around and said, there's two people in that room. So then Sarah has to march up to the front desk again and is really mad at them. Like, hey, this is the second room you sent us to. And uh, we probably shouldn't have stayed there, but they did give us a third room that no one else was in and that had a thermos 
uh, like in the AC unit and a television there. And so we uh, ended up staying the night without incident after that. And then in the morning, uh, took her to the airport and she was gone. And I remember when I woke up that day, by that time, all of us were sick and we're all like, it was just disgusting. Everyone's like got bloody mucus and stuff. Um, and Sarah's leaving. The show is horrible. We stayed in this like uh, this uh, very awful hotel. And then the show that night on Halloween night, which October 31st, is in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And I'm like, Shepherdstown, West Virginia? Like, what is this place? And uh, Steve's like, oh, it's a small town and, you know, Halloween show. We're playing with a couple bands that we'd known from playing in Maryland, I believe. And so we drove across, like, I want to say we crossed, like, six state boundaries that day. Because the road takes you down into, like, Delaware, and then you like go into Virginia, and then you're in West Virginia, and then you're in Virginia again, you're in West Virginia, like going over the river, the bridge near Harper's Ferry and all that. And we get into West Virginia, and it's like this dreary day. <clears throat> and uh, West Virginia is very sparsely populated of a state. And I'm just starting to question like, because I don't think, you know, I, I mentioned going to smaller college towns, but I don't even think this is a college town. It's just like a small town in West Virginia. Uh, and I think I later looked it up and there's like 1,200 people who live there. Um, I didn't know that at the time, but, you know, I didn't know what I was walking into. But it, I guess I'm just trying to get across, like, we had no idea what we were walking into. But we were in such a bad mood at that point that uh, we were expecting it to be terrible. Um so we drove all day. Um, it was sort of a, one of those sleepy drives. Sometimes everyone's awake and talking and active. Um, but everyone was kind of just sleeping it off cause we all felt sick. And, uh, we finally start coasting into, uh, the area, I guess, outside of Shepherdstown. And it's one of those places that you can just tell there's small towns like this kind of on the East coast where the houses are just old, where it's like, I don't know if it's technically speaking colonial architecture, but it feels like that era, something similar to that. You see a lot of old houses sitting on these large plots of land like that, and these old cemeteries. And um, and so, and then when we turned onto the main street of Shepherdstown, I, I've often described it like the way I imagine a lot of like old Stephen King novels, where it's like old America, like the old main street, there's sort of like a park visible at the end of the street and the old, you know, there's like a church and, you know, kind of hovering over the town. And then just like these old main street buildings, like brick and, uh, you know, the old styles of architecture and like little American flags and everything. Um, I don't know if I've like embellished this in my memory, but it was, it was more or less like that. And it's still daylight when we get there, but it's kind of like misty and overcast and uh, we pull up to Stonewall's Pub, and it's like this pizzeria, and they're like, the venue downstairs isn't open until 6 p.m. It's like a basement down there, and there's like a bar in the basement and everything. So that's where the show's going to be. So we've got like three hours until we load in, and we're in the middle of nowhere America in Shepherdstown Main Street. So we just pull up. We find a parking spot in front of this coffee house called The Lost Dog, which was kind of like a, you know, 
what are those granola little hippie coffee houses? But, um, so, you know, we just all order some coffee and I read a book. I was actually reading Genealogy of Morality. I remember it very well. Um, and, uh, so we just hang, we're hanging out there drinking coffee. And I think two of the dudes played Jenga or something like that. And then, uh, this chick comes in for her shift and she, uh, you know, starts working the counter there and changes the music. And she puts on like a song by Sun, uh, the band that's Sun with the O at the end of the parentheses. We'd literally just played a, a festival with that they headlined, uh, in Tucson at the beginning of this tour. And, uh, so we're like, we all like look over and we're like, she's playing sun and it's a song called Halloween. Right. So of course, but it's like, this is like experimental drone metal. Nobody listens to this stuff. So immediately I go over and, uh, well, no, it wasn't then. Then she plays heavy friends by the band Boris and Steve, the guitarist in the story of light, he had started an indie record label called heavy friends records. And I had their patch that said heavy friends on it, uh, stitched into my vest. So I walked over and I showed it to her and she was like super excited, uh, to, you know, Oh, you guys are a touring band, you know, that kind of, you know, so it was like, we were just kind of in this little coffee house in the middle of nowhere in this town. And the, the person who works there is like playing like sun and Boris. And then she played like a whole weed eater album. Um, it was really unexpected and really cool. So that already kind of put us in a better mood. Right. And then as I'm sitting there, we, me and Jeff then, sit in front of the coffee house. Uh, we've, you know, got drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and like, uh, like intellectuals in an Austrian coffee house on the other side of the world, like, uh, decades before we're arguing pretentiously about, <laughs> you know, meta ethics and this ongoing debate that me and Jeff had about meta ethics and whether there was morality and sort of like how morality applied it to our lives. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could articulate any of the points that we made at the time, but um, I would probably make myself cringe if I could go back and listen to the kinds of things that I said and how, how strongly I articulated views that I see a lot more nuance in now. But anyway, as we're doing this and Weed Eater's God Luck and Good Speed is, is blaring from the speakers of the Lost Dog Coffee House, you see these cop cars pull up, which you know, makes us nervous for a second because you never like to see that as a touring musician, but they're just pulling up and then they, they, they park their cars kind of sideways across the lanes, blocking off the street. And then they put up those sort of like orange, uh, like you see at construction sites, like blocking off the street. And on the other side of main street, the other end of it, they cops go and block that off site off too. So no one can drive through there. Like, and we see this in downtown Austin, like on sixth street all the time. Right. But Austin has like a million people living there, two million really in the greater area. This is a town of 1200 people and they're blocking off the downtown main street. Like what is going on? And then slowly, but steadily we start seeing people, you know, grown adults walk, walk around the corner dressed as the Wolfman and Elvira. And then you see families with their kids, um, all in costumes. And then people, couples heading to the bars on main street all everything opens up on the main street because you know like even the bar we were going to wasn't open yet when we got there and people i mean literally hundreds of people like families apparently from all over that county just converged on shepherdstown west virginia and went trick-or-treating at all the businesses and like residences around there 
And because you're in this like old town, uh, you know, vibe, it felt like I was like watching people trick or treating in like the 1950s or something like that. Um, because, you know, I'm used to Austin Halloween where downtown in Austin, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, people wearing like super gory, scary costumes and girls in these tiny little dresses where the Halloween costume is really an excuse for something else. And, uh, or, you know, it's like at a metal show where the costume, you know, it's like, I feel like Halloween in a big city, you see a lot more like gory and like hyper-realistic costumes. Whereas these were like, like, I think I literally saw kids with like the white sheet with holes cut out of it, like ghost costume and like, like little, like it was all like very traditional Halloween. Uh, I, I guess I saw like one or two, like, you know, jokers and stuff like that, but all of that aside. So this just was like, it completely changed our mood. Right. And then sure enough, we go down, the bar opens and that show crushed bunch of people packed down into this little basement bar. Uh, everyone's wearing costumes. A lot of the other bands were wearing costumes. Uh, we, we of course did not because we were on tour and we didn't, uh, you know, bring like, uh, costumes and masks and makeup to, to wear for the Halloween show. That wasn't on our mind, uh, when we were getting ready for this, this tour and we didn't have room in the van to carry that kind of stuff around. But, uh, so we just didn't do it. I guess we could have stopped that day if we really cared. And, but we didn't, we didn't even actually get the memo. It was a costume party until we got there. So, uh, that was an amazing element of it. And I could just, I felt the Halloween energy, right. Playing in this little basement beneath a pizzeria in this tiny town, to a packed house of people in Halloween costumes. And then afterwards, I mean, there was like an older couple there, like maybe in their 30s or 40s, and they were like, oh, yeah, we were like just coming home. We were like from here, uh, but we live elsewhere now, and we are coming home. Uh, like we had like a little break from work to like see our parents and family or whatever. And we saw you, and you guys were awesome. Where are you from? We're, like, we're from Austin, Texas. And they are like, what are you doing here? There's, you know, there's like a thousand people who live here. <laughs> right. And we're like, yeah, it was a great show. Right. And they're like, yeah, I just didn't expect you would come here. But sometimes it's those, it's completely unexpected wild cards that, I mean, it's the most memorable when they work out like that. And some of my favorite shows I've ever played have been in these little no name towns that if I said them, you would be like, I have no idea where that is. If you're not from that part of the country. Right. Um, but it's just, that was the, that was what was happening that night in West Virginia in that part of West Virginia on that Halloween in that year. And, uh, it was amazing. We, we stayed with the bass player of the, one of the bands there. And I remember driving back to his house and it was like passing like those old cemeteries and just these old, like Victorian looking constructions in that town. And, uh, you know, it was the perfect place to spend Halloween. Uh, I highly recommend the East coast and the Midwest during autumn time. And so, I don't know. I thought that would make a good story to tell in this episode just because it's, uh, my most memorable Halloween and it's an example of that, uh, that strange energy of Samhain or the all saints day where I, I could feel that energy on that night where it didn't really make any sense for us to have a good show. <laughs> didn't really make sense for that town to exist or for it to be this like this little recreation of like 
Halloween from days past or like Little America from days past that I don't feel like really exists anymore. I mean, I know it does exist, but um, I don't know. It was it was an unforgettable night for me for reasons that I don't know if I could clearly articulate. But it was the the best reason was that it was like a turnaround after a really uh, terrible night before that. <laughs> and uh, we had a much better time of it uh, after that on that tour. Well, I think I've talked for long enough. I didn't expect to go this long, actually. But um, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, this was another Wandering Above the Sea of Fog. And I hope everyone's ready for season four, because I sure am. So... Happy autumn, everyone, and uh, I'll see you next time. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.